Thank you for subscribing to the weekly sermons of Crossfire YC. We are the Youth Church of Crossfire World Outreach Ministries located in Springfield, Oregon. This podcast is updated weekly. The title of my message is Super Bowl Official or Naked Referee? Anybody happy about that? Super Bowl Official or Naked Referee? Now, I don't know if any of you guys remember the 2004... Super Bowl. Um, I think it was XXXVIII, which I think is 38. I have no idea. But in, it was a, one of the most memorable Super Bowls that we've had. Okay, New England Patriots versus the Carolina Panthers. It was the highest scoring fourth quarter in Super Bowl history. Mike's shaking his head like he knows exactly what I'm talking about and he has no clue. But I like that. Um, <laughs> It was the highest scoring fourth quarter in Super Bowl history. The Patriots won like normal. Um, And I'm not a Patriots fan at all, especially not a Tom Brady fan. Um, Tom Brady was named the MVP, right? Now, if this was a description of the Super Bowl that year, it, it falls into a really vague group of sports games, right? Like if that's what I told you about that Super Bowl, we would go, okay, sounds like any other Super Bowl that's ever been played, right? Somebody scored a lot. Maybe somebody scored more. But something extraordinary happened at this Super Bowl. Something unexpected happened at the Super Bowl. And it didn't happen. It didn't put any extra points on the, on the scoreboard. It didn't add or take away any extra yards. It didn't even happen during the game. It was, the score was 14 to 10 during halftime. And MTV was in charge of the halftime show. Had a, it had some great musical acts, right? Like, uh, like Kid Rock. I think he's saying, I want to be a cowboy baby. Right? Nobody's a Kid Rock fan. Okay, Don likes Kid Rock. All right. Uh, but at the end of the halftime, the audience was entertained by JT, Mr. Justin Timberlake. And Janet Jackson's dance routine. Does anybody remember this happening? Anybody remember this happening? So I don't have to go into details of what exactly happened at this Super Bowl halftime show. But I can say that there's a couple of things that happened from this. Um, we invented the word, w- w- the, the words, we put together the words for the first time. War- I can't say it now. Wardrobe malfunction. Does anybody remember those words? Right? I didn't know wardrobes could malfunction until that day. Neither did America. That was also the very first time that they started doing time delay. (laughs) Good idea, right? Maybe they shouldn't have waited that long. But something else happened at Super Bowl 38, possibly more disturbing. um, And it happened at the beginning of the third quarter. Just like the start of any second half of any football game, the, the, the referee or the official walked the football out to the to the kickoff line, right? Placed it down and prepared for the kickoff. Now, what we saw on TV was we saw the official walk the ball out. You know how they always have that, like, specific walk that they do? You know, like, counting it as they go. It's like they're getting married or something, right? And and he placed the ball down, and all of a sudden we saw him place the ball down, and then the camera panned off of him and went to the commercial break for about 30 seconds. And everybody's like, what's going on? There's some sort of thing. And it came back, and the game was played like normal. 
right? And it, I didn't believe that this really happened until I looked it up on YouTube. And there's no way I would ever be allowed to speak here again if I would have shown you the YouTube video. But what happened was the official walked out, bent over, placed the ball on the ground like every football game we've ever seen. And before he stood up, he tore off his pants, off his shirt, and was completely naked. Standing there in his, in his cap, in his official cap, and his shoes. Then he began to dance. He had goldenpalace.com written across his chest and across his back. He had goldenpalace.com right written. And then he began to dance and everybody was shocked. Nobody knew what to do. The security, the police, nobody knows what to do. And all of a sudden this guy starts running and he's, turns out this guy is a professional streaker. Right? That's his job. Goldenpalace.com paid this guy to go in the middle of the Super Bowl, strip off all his clothes, and run down the field. Right? Nobody knows what to do. Finally, thank the Lord, a Carolina Panther uh, defensive lineman runs out and pummels the guy. Right? Like, doesn't even waste any time. Just lays him flat. You can watch it on YouTube too. They don't worry. They censor everything out. It's really funny. (laughs) Pummels him. And then they hog tie him. Mind you, he's still wearing his cap and his shoes and that's it. And carry him out of the stadium hog tied. Does anybody remember that from that Super Bowl? All right. We have two people that do remember that. That was probably one of the craziest Super Bowls we've ever seen. Because it, we, we looked at it, and we look at the Super Bowl, we always hear about the security at the Super Bowl, how secure it was, right? Yeah? Nobody, nobody, nobody ever hears about that. Nobody ever hears about the extra like police officers and all, all the security they bring in for the Super Bowl. But I, I've, I was wondering when I was watching this, how did this guy get on the field? How did this guy get on the field and not only get on the field, but get the ball, walk it out, place it? Like, did none, did the other officials just say, what's he doing? Or maybe he stood the whole game and threw flags and everything throughout the whole game. I don't know how this guy got on the field, but somehow he got on the field. And I think it's mainly because he looked the part. He was dressed like a, like an official. He was dressed like a Super Bowl official. And I don't know, I, I, something that G always, or actually, I, I don't know if it's G that always talks about it. It's definitely Chris. Chris always says about me is, Danny can get in anywhere he wants to be, ever. And I, and I have. I've literally walked, without a ticket, walked from, from the uh, gates of Autzen Stadium all the way up to the luxury boxes of the, of the, whatever, of the stadium. How did I do that? Because I just look like I know what I'm doing. And just walk past anybody that's going to ask me any questions. I've walked in so behind in backstage of so many concerts and so many different events. Because truth be told, and this is a little bit of a secret, you guys probably can't get away with it because you're not six eight. Maybe Don can, but <laughs> but if you look like you know what you're doing, you can normally get past any type of security <laughs> because you look the part. Maybe you have to dress a certain way. Maybe you have to wear a suit. How many of you guys remember a couple months ago, we, there, there was those White House, uh, the White House dinner crashers or whatever. You guys remember that? Those people that broke into the White House and, 
and crash the dinner party and everybody's like, who are these people and how'd they get here, right? You look the part, you can get in. Now let's shift this into our culture. It, what does it take for me to fit in a culture today? Now I know very easily because I have spent a lot of time with Mike Crawford. And I know that that guy thinks he's a skateboarder. <laughs> he, he talks the lingo. He dresses the dress. But has anybody ever seen him skateboard? So in our culture, do we really need to understand, do we really need to be that type of person to, fall, to fit into it? Or can maybe we just get by dressing the part, talking the talk, walking the walk? obeying the rules of that specific culture. I wonder how many of us think that because we know the culture of Christianity, think that we're good. What if we've been wrongly converted to a culture and missed a real biblical conversion? I recently read an article from CNN that said more teenagers are becoming fake Christians. I think I sent this email to Pastor G. It it talked about how teens today... And it was a warning to to parents that if you have a Christian teenager, be careful because more teens are becoming fake Christians. It said teens today serve a moralistic concept of who God is. It's it's a conscience-cleansing God. Someone they, they don't live for, but they're aware that God has grace that he offers so they will intentionally do wrong knowing that they can always go to him and ask for forgiveness. How many of you guys have ever felt like that? I mean, don't raise your hand, please. (laughs) Way too honest guys are raising their hand. It's your new title. Way too honest guys. Um, (laughs) How many of us have felt like that? Well, I can ask for forgiveness and probably get away with it. There's one thing that I know that if you're around Crossfire Youth Church very long, you can learn some stuff. You can learn some stuff pretty quickly. You can learn when to raise your hands. Amen. You can learn when to say amen. Amen. There we go. Uh, Something specific for this church is you learn when to pace during the slow songs. Right? You learn when to jump and how high to jump during the fast songs. You know how to bow and pray hard, Jet. I'm not saying Jet does. I'm just saying Jet, stop talking. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he does. I'm not. No, I'm not. Just, I'm not judging his heart. Do you? You have no idea. All right. Um, you know when to put your. You know when to put your hands on your friend's shoulder and bow your head as you're talking so the staff member walking up to you won't think you're talking to your friends and tell you to stop talking, right? How many of you guys have learned that trick? <laughs> Start talking. Oh, there's staff first in the corner of my eye. Well, let's just pray about that. So I was just telling them that we need to... <laughs> I'm not teaching anything anybody doesn't already know. You just learned that stuff. We know when to show up for youth church. When we, we know when to show up for a rise. We know when to help out in fundraisers. We know the good fundraisers to help out with and the not-so-good fundraisers to help out with. (laughs) Fireworks. Show up for donuts. Don't show up for fireworks. And on and on and on. Not all of these are bad things. But what if these things cloud our ability to see that we have never been converted to Christ? 
What if we've been converted to a culture and missed Christ? Not because we have a bit wicked heart or we're trying to deceive ourselves or, or that we've been wrongly taught or, or maybe it's just that our assurance has been in some empty words. Maybe it's been some event that's happened that makes us believe that, yeah, we're, we've been converted to Christ. What if we're walk, walking under false assurance? What if we're walking under false assurance that's based on cultural conversion rather than full assurance that's based on biblical conviction? Tonight, I want to I want to read in Matthew chapter seven, and uh, just to give you some history of, of the book of Matthew, really quick. In Matthew one through four, we're we're introducing Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, that's what Matthew's doing. You know, he's saying the Messiah is coming to stage. Uh, Jesus is is the right one. He explains how how the Messiah has been promised. He explains that he's from the line of David. He's the only one that's going to sit on David's throne. And then, and then comes preaching of John the Baptist, right? Prepare the way, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sin of the world. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a message of John the Baptist. Jesus, Jesus then comes. He's, the dove falls on him. He goes away into the, into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted and tried by the devil. Um, all this is preparing, preparing for Jesus' public ministry, right? Jesus arrives in Gal- Galilee, and upon his arrival, he announces the kingdom is here. And he calls his disciples, and then chapter 5 begins. And the beginning of 5 to the end of chapter 7 is one of the most famous sermons in all of history, right? It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why, why is it the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus spoke a sermon on a mountain. It's that easy. Right. And I, and I really can, can I give you guys some homework? Can you go home tonight and read Matthew five through seven for me? Just read through it and and you'll understand a lot of what I'm talking about tonight, but we're going to kind of highlight it, right? Because Jesus begins his public ministry with this sermon. I mean, these are his words and this is what he, what he, what he begins to preach to the crowds, what he begins to preach to his disciples and to the multitudes and all that have gathered and he opens his mouth and he begins to speak and he, and he starts with the Beatitudes. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Don't worry, we'll get there. And he goes through the sermon and I really want to, just because of time and, and stuff, I, I really want to just get right into, uh, really you got to follow close with me here or Candace or whoever's back there. Cause I'm, I'm going to skip over some stuff. Um, Basically, Jesus, Jesus is challenging with the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's challenging. He's saying, commit. Right? He's saying, what will you do with me? It, it's a call to discernment. It's a call to commitment. It's, it, it's it, towards the end of this message. It boils out to this. We're, it's kind of confusing. That's why I said I really need you to pay attention because we're kind of doing like an M. Night Shyamalan service. Okay? Where you guys know him like, I don't know how to say his name. Shyamalan, did I say it right? Okay, they said it weird on The Office, but okay. 
Shamalimala. Okay, so M. Night, you know how at the beginning of The Sixth Sense, we see Bruce Willis die, and then all of a sudden he goes through the whole thing, and then we go back to the beginning, and we find out he's dead? We're kind of doing that. We're going to the end, and then back and forth and stuff. So at the end of this message, this is basically what this whole Sermon on the Mount boils down to. It says, what will you do with me? And, and towards the end, he goes into these, these, these two distinct different things, right? And, and it's multiple things. First, he talks about two ways. He says, the, there, there's a wide path and there's a narrow path. Everybody say two ways. Come on, louder than that. Two ways. So here's the question he's asking. Will you enter the gate to life in the kingdom of heaven and embark on a life of following me? Or will you reject me for the popular road that leads to destruction? Right? And then he talks about two trees. Everybody say two trees. One tree is that it, it is a good tree that bears good fruit, and one tree is a bad fruit that that or bad tree that bears bad fruit. And the question is, is again, what will you do with me? Will you find life in me? Will you find the inner source for transformation that will produce good fruit to your life, or will you follow the voices of the world? We follow the hype of a promise of a life, but will only take you to the fires of hell, right? And then he talks about the two claims. Say two claims. Oh, that was sad. Say two claims. That was even worse. (laughs) And there he's asking, he says, will you obey my father? And will you come to me? Will you come and let me be your only Lord? Or will you chase after false manifestations of spirituality that result in eternal banishment? Right? And Jesus ends this sermon on the Mount by describing two builders. Say two builders. One builds his, li- his, his life on the sand, his house on the sand. One builds his house on the rock. And the question that he asks as he closes his sermon is, will you build your life on me as your solid rock or will you build it on the sand? That's going to be washed away. So the, the call boils down to this. The commitment is actually, it's, it's, it's two dramatically different pictures right here. We got the two paths. We have the two trees. We have the two builders or we, or we have the two claims and we have the two builders, right? All of these things are two drastically different opposing things, correct? And that's what this, this, this boils down to. And we're going to, we're going to go into verse 23 in Matthew chapter seven. Like I said, read the whole thing. We're going to jump back to Matthew five in a second, but Jesus is this entire time. He's asking us, to make, he, he's not asking us to make him the most important thing in his, in our life. How many of you guys feel like you have to do that in your life? Make God the most important thing in your life. I, I mean, I feel like that sometimes, right? But what Jesus is saying in this entire message is he's not saying I'm part of life. He's saying, I am life. He's saying, I'm not 95% of your life. He's saying, I am life. Outside of me, there is no life. And I hope you guys are sticking with me because we're going through three chapters right now. We're going through three chapters, and I'm just trying to highlight as much as I can just because of time. And I hope you guys are sticking with me, right? Jesus holds life. And this is what he's putting it all, put, put, putting it all into perspective. He's saying, I am life. And he's telling this to the masses. He's telling this to his disciples. And he's telling that to us, that he's life. You see, 
if we're going to be cultural Christians, then Jesus can be the biggest piece of our life. The biggest piece of pie. You know, we can fit him in with our work. We can fit him in with our family. We can fit him in with our social life. All of these things will ultimately compete for his affection. Because he says, I am life. I'm not a part of your life. I am life. In me, you're not going to find your life. In me, you're going to find life. I'm the, I'm the grid by which you understand everything. He inundates us. He affects us. He changes us. He speaks to every aspect of life, to my family, to my friends, to my money, to my job, to my time, to my worship, to my priorities, everything. Jesus is everything. And before we really get into the text... That was the longest introduction I've ever given. Before we get into the, the text, I really, I really want you to know my heart that I'm not, I'm not doing this to bring any type of conviction. I'm not speaking this word to bring any type of conviction. I'm speaking this word because I want us a, as individuals to honestly look at our hearts, look at our souls, and, and, and check this word that Jesus is saying. Check this, this thing that Jesus is, is, is warning us. I, I don't want to bother you tonight, but if, if this scripture bothers you, then let it bother you. Sometimes we, we get so bothered by scripture that we just want to read over it and we just want to get past it and we don't let it bother us and get inside of us and bug us and cause change to happen in our lives. And so if this scripture tonight bothers you, if this message tonight bothers you, then by all means, let this bother you and let it bring something, some new life into you. I don't want you to be fearful, but this is, this is just, this is just what this scripture is declaring. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. We're going to put it on the screens too. Remember, this is the entire message and this is towards the end of the message. We went through all the pictures that Jesus is showing. It says this, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is saying this right here. He's saying, and just hold hold that scripture. He's saying that one day there are going to be those that are going to be surprised to find out that they are not his. Isn't, isn't that what the text is saying? He starts off by saying, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so the first point I want to make tonight is words are insufficient to save even the right words. These are the right words, aren't they? Lord, Lord. 
Right? Isn't that what we're supposed to say? Isn't that what we're supposed to call to Jesus? But Jesus is saying, these words alone are empty and insufficient. But his understanding of confession is that it comes... Whoa, I think I missed a page here. Yep. Sorry, hold on. It's, it's not just words that we speak, but it's a heart of confession in our lives. It's, it's, it's a heart that's, that's a full-on desperate cry, a, a plea that produces change. And, and without when we just say words, that confession is empty. See, I didn't get saved until I was 17 years old, but I grew up in church. Right? I went to, I went to kids' church, and, and they told me to memorize Scripture. And, and so I, I would memorize all the verses they would tell us to memorize. And why? I would, I would show up on time. I would bring my Bible. I would look my best. I would try to do all the things that they taught me to do. Why? Because if I did all those things, and if I got the memory verses right, then the boys would get more points than the girls and then the boys would get a prize at the end of class and the girls wouldn't get a prize and that was my motivation see i would memorize scripture based off of the prize that i was going to get but there was zero there was zero indication that i had any relationship whatsoever with god it wasn't until I, when I was 17 and I was driving around with my friend doing stupid things that I felt something inside of me and I heard God speak to me. I have more for you than this. I have more for you than this. And I'm like, looking, God, is that you? What's going on? I, I already know you. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm doing the right things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying in the morning. I'm doing all these things. But God said, you don't know who I am. And I have more for you than this. You see, I had a false assurance, and it might have come from growing up in a Christian home, or it might have just been relaxed and not really worried about what God had for me. But I would cry out to God, God, in times that hurt, God, do something here. But those, those, those cries were empty because I only wanted to go to God when I needed him, but I didn't want to make him part of who I was. I didn't want him to be involved with my life any time that I didn't want him. And so we can say, we can say, Jesus, come, come and save me. But if it, if something inside of us doesn't change, then is it just empty words? We can cry out, Lord, Lord. But if, if something doesn't change inside of our hearts, is it empty words? I wasn't saved when I first prayed the sinner's prayer when I was four years old. Wasn't when I was eight. Wasn't when I f- was 14. I, it didn't come until I was 17. And I can tell you that I saw a change in my life from when I was 17. I was moving forward. Was I perfect? No, but there was an absolute difference in my life. There was a difference in my affections for God. There was a difference in the way that I looked and, 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 look and thought about sin. There was a difference in my willingness to repent. See, something changed inside of me, not because I just said empty words of Lord, Lord, but I 
let God become life inside of me. And things began to change. But what if I would have just meandered through life thinking that I was saved, thinking that I prayed the prayer and I was good? I was set up. See, words alone are insufficient to save. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But something has to change. Something has to cause you to want to be more Christ-like. And if that hasn't happened, then I think you need to go back to your confession to Christ. You need to look at that and say, God, have I really invited you into my life? Have I really invited you to be life in my life? Because Christianity is way, way, way more than just not going to hell. Do you know how many times I talk to people and say, I'm a Christian because I don't want to go to hell? You're not a Christian. Because the reality is, Christianity, Christ-like, being Christ-like, there's something way greater in serving our God that loves and cares about us than avoiding punishment. Christianity isn't about going to heaven or going to hell. Christianity is about Jesus Christ being God, coming to mankind to redeem the relationship that we once had with him so that we would no longer have to be separate from him. But so many people accept Jesus because they're scared they're going to go to hell. Biblical conversion is not about going to hell. Jesus said to him, many will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven because words are insufficient to save. Verse 22 says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? Do you hear the surprise in these guys, whoever these people are? Do you hear the surprise in their voice saying, no, God, no, no, we did these things. We went and, and. And we passed out flyers for youth church. We, we showed up at a rise on Sunday mornings. We did all these things. We went to the fundraisers. We did the things that we were supposed to do. Are you a cultured Christian? Or are you a biblical disciple? The, the surprise in their voice when he said, I never knew you. So words are insufficient to save. And and spiritual and religious activity is inadequate of evidence of faith. Activities are inadequate to say, I have faith in God. Because it says right here, these guys did all this stuff. All these things, right? Did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name, did we not do many wonderful works, many mighty works? Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples they would do? They would do these things. So if his disciples were doing these things and these other people were doing these things, then what's the difference? See, all these things are good. But without a heart change and a heart recognition, words and works, it's nothing. It's so easy for us to just fall into this culture 
And I'm not saying the world culture. I'm saying this Christianity culture. It's so easy for us to say, I'm doing a good job, though. Showing, a, showing up at church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm worshiping. Are you Christian cultured? Are you a biblical disciple? So what, what does this mean? Do, how do we know? How can we be assured? How can we know for certain, right? Because you're sitting here telling me, well, these people seem like they thought they were saved, right? And I think I'm saved. And, and they were doing the right things. And I, I think I'm doing the right things. So how can I really know? And, and it says this. He says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But what does it say there? But he, the, but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. So this is all about works? No. No, this is about something changes in our heart. And all of a sudden we have a heart to do things differently. What are the works of Father who's in heaven? Well, remember, this is an entire message. So if we want to know what the works of the Father in heaven, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of this message where he laid it out. And he, start, he, he talks about the Beatitudes. And, and what he says, he says, my disciples will look like this. Go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 5. It says this, it says, blessed are the, verse 3, it says, blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when others reveal you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before them. So this is what Jesus is saying is he's saying, my disciples are going to look like this is the people who are going to get in are the people who have done the work of my father. And this entire message that I've been speaking to you, that Jesus has taken three chapters of Matthew to speak. He's saying that this is what you're going to look like. This is what the work of, of the father is. And I want to go in it with you so we can look at our lives And we can ask the question, have I simply converted to culture or am I true, genuine disciple of Christ? Do these things show up in you? Are these things growing progressively in you? Is your life marked by these things more and more and more? Jesus says, my disciples are marked by these things. Are you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said. And this... the. When I read through that, was anybody confused? Was anybody like, wow, that was a lot of scripture. What does that exactly mean? That's really hard to understand. Well, let's go through it. Okay. Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is a question we have to ask ourselves. Do, do I live in humility before God and man? Do I recognize that without him, I'm nothing. 
Do I, do I live different before him? And because I live different before him, I've learned to live differently before others. Do I recognize that any richness in my soul has been given to me by him and through him? Anything I can achieve personally is only because of what I am, because of him. So because of the gospel of Christ, his death and his resurrection, I live differently. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do we, do we recognize that? Blessed are those who mourn. He's asking this question. And this is a question we're asking ourselves tonight. Am I broken over sin? Does sin disrupt my spirit? Do I hate sin? Do I despise the sin that I see me? Do I despise the sin that I see in my friends or my, my neighbors or my coworkers? Not that I would walk over and pound them on the head for it, but, but I would be broken knowing that my God is a holy and righteous God and that sin ultimately leads his son to be slaughtered on the cross. And so when I see people that are in sin and I see my friends that are in sin, it breaks my heart. Because Jesus already paid that penalty. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Has your appetite for authority and power been broken? Has has the lust in your heart, in my heart, to have authority and power that I might use it for my means, for, for my glory, to lord over over my friends or, or, or my school or to be the popular person? Has that been broken in my life? See, we've seen people who've taken power and lorded over countries and governments and nations, but Jesus is saying this, that his disciples and that lust for power is broken. That, that, power, that the power has been used to channel means for the kingdom. That it's not for our own gain. That it's not for our own desire. But we're using that, the power that we've been given for the kingdom. He's saying, my disciples who follow me, they'll be marked by this. They'll be known by this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do I yearn for the rule and the reign of Christ? Am I desperate to see God reign in my life? Am I desperate to see God reign in this city, in my family? Do I long to be with God? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Am I a person who extends grace? The crazy thing is about grace is that it's given to those who don't deserve it. They haven't done anything to get it. Am I a person who extends mercy and recognizes that grace has been granted to me through the cross of Christ? Has this become a reality in my life? Am I gracious to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my parents, to my siblings? Am I gracious with my car? Am I gracious while driving? Do my feathers get easily ruffled, you know? 
when that idiot won't go at the green light, do I get mad and lose my Jesus? Am I so entitled to my space, my world, my way of doing things, my life's all about me? Or I'm the one who extends grace and mercy in the name of Christ because it's been extended to me. Blessed are the pure in the heart, for they shall see God. Do I strive towards holiness? Do I strive for purity in my life, in my mind, in my heart, in my speech, in my affections, in my relationships? Do I strive for purity? In Romans 12, Paul 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 says that the the very will of God in my life that would be that I would be conformed into the image of his son. Being conformed into the image of his son means that I will look more and more like Christ, which means I strive for grace, for purity, for holiness in my life. Is, Is that marked in me? I hope you guys are asking yourselves these questions. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do I make peace? Do I spread peace? Do I speak peace? Paul said, I have given the ministry, been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means that there are two parties that are hostile towards one another, and I've been commissioned as a peacemaker to end the hostility. Is that found in my life? Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when all others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. The question for the disciple is this, is do I suffer well? Although it hurts, although it's painful, I can still say, bless God. Does this mark my life? See, the question tonight is, have you been converted to a culture? Or have you been converted to Jesus? Have you been converted to a nice moral way of life? Or have you been converted to Jesus Have you been converted to a safe way to live? Or have you been converted to Jesus? Have you been converted to a social gathering? Or have you been converted to Jesus? First John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the, somebody help me out, Lauren, help me out with that word, it's a big word, there we go, for our sins, this word means that Jesus is the wrath bearer, that he takes the wrath, that Jesus is the one who who bears the wrath of God towards sin, just like God's angry with sin, he doesn't just look it over. He punishes sin, and he did it in his son, Jesus. That's what it means when we're saying that Jesus is the 
Thank you. Of for sin. Continues on and says, not for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this, we may know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not with him. But whoever keeps his words in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's consistent with what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is this, is that Jesus died for our sins and rose on the third day. By Christ dying for our sins, he bore the wrath from the Father. He's been our shield, taking the punishment due to me for my sin. He hung on the cross and he took it. He died on the cross And he was raised three days later in his resurrection. He proves that he is indeed the Messiah, the one who comes and takes away the sin of the world. And moving forward, that same spirit of Christ that raised him from the dead lives in us. We've now been entrusted and empowered as believers. We have this deposited inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Same spirit that raised Christ. Get this, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives inside of me, inside of you. That's amazing. So are we living this biblically, biblical, excuse me, biblical example of a disciple? Or are we living within our cultured Christianity, within our Christian community? If I could everybody, everybody bow their heads and close their eyes.